This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This is Gray Thornton with the Wild Sheep Foundation, and you're listening to Impact Outdoors Podcast. Bottom line, you've got this critter that lives in some of the most incredible places, and harshest environments, roughest place to find groceries, you know, grazing for them. Uh, but they are extremely susceptible to respiratory disease. This, this pathogen is called Mycoplasma ovonemoniae or Imovi. Uh, it is a setup agent. Uh, it basically in the trachea lays down the cilia, the little, uh, the little fibers that we use and we have as humans to cough up things. You know, we've just come out of a two, well, God willing, we've come out of a two-year pandemic, very similar, you know, where, where we, you know, you, you get, you know, coronavirus or COVID-19 as a setup agent that can lead to pneumonia. Well, same thing happens to, to bighorn sheep. So uh, bighorn sheep took a dive. Um, however, we started to learn. We started to learn what this issue was. Um, you know, they've got blue tongue. They've got other, other, you know, but the big issue was this pneumonia. We've learned more enough. Now we're starting to separate the two species a little better. Uh, we've got some other things that we can talk about that are working, but the good news is that from the low of the 1970s, late 1960s, 1970s, we've increased bighorn populations threefold to about 85,000 now in North America. And there's some incredible success stories. Hey everybody, welcome back to this week's episode of Impact Outdoors Podcast, and we have got another great episode coming to you from the Huntfish Podcast Summit we did this year, and on this week's show, we are joined by Gray Thornton, the President and CEO of the Wild Sheep Foundation, and so excited to have Gray on to discuss all things wild sheep and the issues that this animal is facing across the country and across the world but specifically here in the united states and um, we kind of dive into a bunch of the the things um going on with the sheep right now and and what the wild sheep foundation is doing as far as research and fundraising and all that great stuff and get a little bit of uh, gray's backstory and how he got into the sport of hunting and and stuff and he's just got a incredible story a great uh, background he's uh, has a tremendous career in the conservation world working for uh, SCI and running Dallas Safari Club and now the Wild Sheep Foundation so this is a great one can't wait for you to listen to it so let's jump right into this week's episode with Gray Thornton Man, we are uh, we're here at the Warren Ranch, and I've got uh, my good friend, Mr. Gray Thornton, on the show with us today. Welcome, Gray. Derek, uh, what a pleasure to be here, and and huge shout out to you for your vision to do this uh, this podcast summit. I, I'm I, I love the idea, love the concept, and and then once again, uh, you just brought 
together an incredible group of passionate individuals from all over, diverse, different backgrounds, different interests, but you know what? We all came together for one thing, and that's our love of the outdoors and love of angling and hunting. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate that, sir. And, and uh, it's been uh, it's been an honor to have everybody here this year. Um, everything's just went off without a hitch. The weather's been great. Um, you know, y'all got to go pig hunting last we, night. We Tell us it. about that. Oh, How was that? You know, that's that just awesome. You know, it's uh, God love Texas. You know, I, I, I lived here. I lived here for eleven years, from uh, nineteen ninety seven to two thousand eight. And, um, you know, there's something about Texas. Um, my mom was born in San Antonio. And I, I hate to say this to all my Texas friends, but, you know, she's gray. Gray, you need to move to Texas. You know, you need to move to Texas. And just to tick my mom off, you say, you know, Mom, there's one problem with Texas. You know, there's Texans here. <laughs> oh, my God, that almost killed her. Well, and, and rightfully so, because when I moved to Texas, you know, that was one of the things. I was living in Dallas. I was running Dallas Safari Club. And um, Texans are the most pull it up by the bootstraps. Let's get it done. Uh, no challenge is too difficult. Uh, no, no hill too far, you know, or too too hard to climb. And uh, so, man, I uh, I love this place. And and the and the wildlife management system here is obviously different. You know, you got ninety eight percent privately held land. Um, it is a it is an incredible ethic. It took me a while to learn it from coming from public land states. Uh, but you know, where other than the great state of Texas and a few other places can you go thermal pig hunting? Yeah. Uh, you know, we had a fabulous mud bug dinner last night. I love crawdads <laughs> like there's no tomorrow. And you know, we we had a we had a big mud bug dinner, and you know, just some good uh, good times. Uh, Dr. Dale Rollins gave us an inspirational presentation. Such a fabulous man. I've known him for twenty some odd years always good to be around them and then after that we got to go out with a couple of great guys uh, from the warren ranch here and and find this pest called the hog Mm -hmm. and um do our best to let the air out of them with uh with uh, ar-15s with thermal scopes and suppress so what's not the love about that yeah I want to know what Renee thought. Oh, that was she, her first first time. First time. Now you know Renee, my my lovely wife is Canadian, um, and if uh, you know if if you don't know, Canadian firearm laws are a wee <laughs> bit different than the U.S. and a far cry from what we do here in <laughs> Texas. So um, now I I love black guns, so I've got a whole slew of them. But for whatever reason, you know, she and I, she and I got married uh, a little over two years ago, and uh, um, we uh, we haven't shot those guns yet. So I need to get her out because she loved it. You know, mm-hmm. she loved the concept of shooting a uh, semi-auto. Uh, she have loved the concept of shooting a suppressed weapon. I've got a couple of those. Uh, so I better I better get my bride out there and, and do this. But boy, what she really loved is looking through that thermal scope, seeing a white hot pig, and um, and letting the air out of it. Yeah, yeah. And yet, did y'all did y'all get one? We did. Last night? We That's did. Awesome. We we kind of collected. I haven't got to see any of the pictures or yeah. anything yet. So <laughs> we collectively got one. We even called it in, which was cool. Oh wow. And then, uh, I think individually we 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 got a few more, so that's yeah, a, it was a great time. That's awesome. There's there's no shortage of them, which is a very bad thing, um, right. which is evidence of you know just the lake here behind us. You know the water's down a little bit in this in this water body, and when I got here Wednesday night, I walked down there and I was like. Oh yeah, there's a few pigs running yeah. around right now here by the lodge, just alone, and uh, um, and I think to so far this year they've killed upwards of 750 pigs in this general area by helicopter alone. Yeah, I heard that last I mean, that's night. That's insane. Yeah, that is insane. And and you look at the damage, and you know I'm I'm not a pig biologist. I'm not a biologist, but I you know I understand that they can you know they can be of sexual maturity in less than a year. Uh, and have multiple litters in a year, that's yeah. a problem. Yeah, it's uh, it's very, very hard to control. I don't think it'll ever get under control no. now, it seems like, which is unfortunate. But, you know, I think the helicopter hunting, um, the pressure on them from the hunting industry 
is is helping um but ultimately i think trapping is probably the number one way to collectively take out an entire sounder you know and i've seen that that's been the most you know when you can set up an area where i mean some of these sounders might be 50 to 100 pigs wow you know and if they can get one of the drop down traps where they have them up and then Right, catch them, you know, by um, camera release where they're watching them on video and stuff, and that's pretty pretty cool uh, way to go about it. And uh, um, but uh, they they decimate everything they come in contact with. The good thing is they taste pretty good. Yeah, yeah, so they're not not bad, especially those pan sized pigs. Yeah. So, but uh, well, I'm I'm very excited to have you on the show today. Um, you know, one of my earliest uh, memories. Um, Back in 1985, my dad's brother lived, and his wife and family lived up in Anchorage. Mm. And I remember going. I was like very six cool. years old, okay? Yeah, and cool. uh, I vaguely have re- memories from that trip, you know, getting seasick, fishing for halibut. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> um, we went over to Kodiak. I remember doing that and, and did some camping and, and things. And, and uh, um, but one of the things I remember is one day we went, we were looking at bald eagles or something, and I was like, I, was, I remember my, I asked my father or my uncle Jim, and I was like, what are all those white dots up there on the side of that, that rock? I mean, what is that? And he's like, oh, those are sheep. And uh, ever since then, you know, I've always, you know, we're not around them here. Like, right. we have the bighorns here out in West Texas and stuff, but I've, you know, I've unfortunately not yet made it out there with our buddy chester um to see and photograph those animals but um you were in charge of the wild sheep foundation yeah and and the just an amazing conservation group and and looking at this tell us about wsf and y'all's mission and and the status of of these animals uh, you, you know, Derek, you, you look at the incredible comeback uh, that we've had in North America on bringing, bringing wildlife populations back. I mean, you know, geez, the 1900s, late, you know, late 1800s, I mean, there were, there were less white-tailed deer in North America than Texas harvests in one year. Um, and so, you know, we're, we, we talk a lot about the comeback, uh, the unendangered species of those that could have been endangered, you know, comeback of elk, comeback of, of you know, white-tailed deer, pronghorn, geese, turkey, ducks. Uh, wild sheep didn't fare so well. Um, at, the, at the turn of the uh, century, 1800, uh, when Lewis and Clark were making their way west, wild sheep, Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep, or rock, you know, bighorn sheep, were, were one of the most populous animals they came across. Estimated maybe one to two million bighorn sheep in North America, mm-hmm. Canada, U.S., Mexico at those times. Um, where we had decimated most of those other wildlife species in 100 years by 1900, uh, we hadn't quite done that to bighorn sheep, or we just didn't know. Actually, the low point for bighorn sheep, while other species were on an uptick, was the late 1960s, early 1970s. Okay. And we had re- decreased the number of bighorn sheep in North America from you know 1 to 2 million, let's say a million, down to 25,000 by mid-70s. Terrible. Um, How did that happen? Well, yes, over-harvest, certainly. Um, But, but, you know, we talk about an invasive species to Texas, wild hog, Mm -hmm. um, and how they proliferate. Uh, Well, we we brought in an invasive species into wild sheep range, domestic sheep and goats, uh, as part of the part of the you know the founding of the American West, if you will. Mm -hmm. But we brought in millions of domestic sheep and goats into wild sheep range. Um, Domestic sheep and goats have a pathogen that uh, they are more immune to, and wild sheep are naive to. Not unsimilar to Europeans bringing smallpox to the Americas. Okay. and to Native Native Americans. Um, so that was the biggest impact. And when we brought these domestic sheep into wild sheep range to graze on good grass, um, the contact between the two past this pathogen. We've learned a lot about this. Wild Sheep Foundation spends millions of dollars in, in disease research. But the bottom line, you've got this critter that lives in some of the most incredible places and harshest environments, roughest place to find groceries, you know, grazing for them. 
but they are extremely susceptible to respiratory disease. This, this pathogen is called Mycoplasma ovonemoniae or Imovi. Uh, it is a setup agent. Uh, it basically in the trachea lays down the cilia, the little, uh, the little fibers that we use and we have as humans to cough up things. Mm-hmm. You know, we've just come out of a two, or God willing, we've come out of a two-year yeah. pandemic. Very similar, you know, where where we, you know, you, you get, you know, coronavirus or COVID-19 as a setup agent that can lead to pneumonia. Well, mm-hmm. same thing happens to, to bighorn sheep. So uh, bighorn sheep took a dive. Um, however, we started to learn. We started to learn what this issue was. Um, you know, they've got blue tongue. They've got other, other, you know, but the big issue was this pneumonia. We've learned more enough. Now we're starting to separate the two species a little better. Uh, we've got some other things that we can talk about that are working. But the good news is that from the low of the 1970s, late 1960s, 1970s, we've increased bighorn populations threefold to about 85,000 now in North America. And there's some incredible success stories. Um, Nevada, from 1,000 bighorn sheep now to over 12,000 bighorn wow. sheep. So. Not as numerous as whitetail, certainly not as numerous as some other species, um, but we're at least making headway and bringing them back. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, when was the Wild Sheep Foundation started? We were founded in 1977, so kind of in that in that heyday of the <clears throat> challenge, and we were actually founded as the Foundation for North American Wild Sheep. Okay. Um, there are there's some subspecies but basically you know you talked about the doll sheep in alaska there's four primary subspecies of, of wild sheep in north america the dolls that white sheep you saw mm-hmm. in those those rocks and in, in, in cliffs and mountains in alaska uh they reside in alaska yukon territory northwest territories in canada and also a little bit of northwest british columbia that province okay. in canada then you have the stone sheep which is another thin horn you have big horns and thin horns dolls is a thin horn stones is a big as a thin horn stone sheep are in northern british columbia uh, there's also what's called a fannin sheep, which is, you know, either a dark paleage dolls or a cross, if you will, between mm-hmm. the dolls and the stones and overlapping or similar uh, uh, ecosystems. Um, so those are the thin horn. Then as you move south, we have Rocky Mountain bighorn, uh, something called a California bighorn that's also in British Columbia. But, you know, for the, the a generality, Rocky Mountain bighorn, and they reside in most of the western uh, mountainous states. Uh, but there's uh, a few outliers. Uh, we've got uh, Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep in the badlands of the Dakotas. Mm. Uh, we have Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep up in northwest uh, Nebraska. Interesting huh. enough. I didn't know that. And crazy <laughs> enough, and I know you spent some time in Oklahoma. Yeah. Just there little. are there are bighorn <laughs> sheep that cross into a little patch of the of the you know, that arm or kind of the that panhandle region yeah. of of Texas, Oklahoma, and Colorado. So well, every once in a while Oklahoma has some bighorn sheep in it. And then, of course, in the great state of Texas, we start the uh, and and move westward and into Mexico. We have the desert bighorn sheep. Mm-hmm. Man, that's a that's fascinating, you know, because I love hearing that about Oklahoma because that's just one more species yeah. that I can be like, you know, Oklahoma has these yeah, bighorn you sheep. Know, pretty much everything else. You bet. You, know, yeah, so, you can but, say yeah. what you like. It's a great state. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. So, um, was the uh, the the effect of the domestic sheep infiltration into this part of the country like the, the western half of the country back then was it pretty um similar effects on all those interesting question um yes and and no and this is this is where the the challenges lie um you know for whatever reason and it could be the habitat it could be nutrition um you know similar to humans you know look at again there's the pandemic that we've just gone through some people who get covid uh, minor symptoms mm-hmm. some people it's all over um it can be similar with with wild sheep, bighorn sheep, and, and domestic sheep. Sometimes contact results in an all age di- all age die off. So, Derek, what does that mean? Rams, ewes, lambs, all die. 
mm. just a you know a massive die-off. Then what follows that is often very low lamb recruitment from those that didn't die. How does that happen? Kind of a typhoid Mary. You know, there's a super shredder, a shedder that, that is living, still has the pathogen in their, in their respiratory system, uh, passes it on to lambs, may pass it on to other ewes, other, other rams, mm-hmm. and, and keeps the, the lamb recruitment, you know, bringing, you know, new lamb crop up. Almost zero levels are very, very low levels to the point that they cannot increase their numbers. Uh, then you have some populations that, for whatever reason, uh, we've seen this down in the Navajo Nation. They've they've been coexisting to a degree with with domestic sheep and the pathogens they harbor, and doing fairly well. So um, you know more more needs to be learned. Uh, we're spending million dollars, millions of dollars on the research and. Yeah, trying to come up with answers. What are um, so? Let's talk about some of the research projects y'all are y'all are doing. Obviously, with the pathogen stuff and, and that kind of thing. What are some of the other things y'all looking at? A lot of habitat issues. Yeah, or is, is, are the habitat issues similar in the way of thinking of the conservation mind? I guess as with turkeys or whitetail. I mean, you, they live in different habitats. You, totally, you bet. But but wild sheep are an indicator species. So if wild sheep habitat is doing pretty well, chances are other critters are going to do well as uh, you know too. Um, the habitat challenges that are facing wild sheep. Um, you know, not to get into the politics because I have my own view. But you know, the climate is changing. Mm-hmm. Well. You know, sorry, ladies and gentlemen, climate's been changing for millions and millions yeah. of years. Just look at Yosemite. So, yeah, the climate changes, um, and and we'll be we be around to see the next change. I don't know, but climate change has an impact. We have conifer encroachment up into uh, bighorn sheep range. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that do? Well, that can bring predators up into their you know their range. Yeah. Uh, bighorn sheep, thinhorn sheep want escape cover. Um, you know, they, they have good hearing, but they've got better eyesight, so they need open country to see. Uh, that conifer cro- encroachment can, can limit the habitat that they can use. Um, we have challenges right now in Alaska with heavy, heavy snows for the last two years. Then a warming period which starts to melt. Then a hard freeze, which creates a, you know, literally an ice block above the the graze and the you know the ground that that the doll sheep and and stone sheep need but in this case particularly doll sheep need to eat so we've had huge die-offs in some areas Uh, and then the the other challenge is finding places that used to have bighorn sheep uh, that no longer have bighorn sheep that we can repatriate bighorn sheep and that's some one of the things that wild sheep foundation and our chapters and affiliates do a lot of and need to do more of and like to do more of because that's the sexy thing you were talking about drop nets on on wild hogs well, we use drop nets on wild sheep. We do uh, helicopter netting of mm-hmm. wild sheep, and you know we'll take 25 to 50 sh- uh, bighorn sheep out of one area and move them into another to repatriate. So it's one of the most exciting things that we do, one of the most sexy things we do, and uh, you know it just gives you you know just an absolute thrill and and a gut wrenching you know smile, if you will of capturing a sheep bringing it into an area that hasn't had them in a long time you know maybe 50 to 100 years and then releasing them and go you know what we're making an impact yeah and it's crazy i've seen some of the the photos that um, have come with some of the work they've done here in texas and stuff mm-hmm. out in, in west texas and uh just seeing them you know capturing these animals out of these helicopters and then they're also collecting a lot of other data along with that and then and then just how they transport them it's really it's it's a really unique way you know because you're not just driving out in the pasture and letting these things go like they a lot of times i assume most most of the time they got to be brought in by helicopter brought in by helicopter there's sometimes you know sometimes we can transport them in a uh, we do a double decker horse trailer but you know uh, once again, you know, I'm sitting here in Texas, I love this state, I love the people. Um, you know, Texas has an incredible comeback story with with uh, wild sheep. In the 50s, the last desert bighorn sheep was extirpated out of Texas. Uh, about five years ago, Texas had 
uh, a historical high of about 2,000 desert bighorns. It was done in a very unique, very Texas way. Um, you know, we, we, we talked about how Texas is privately held. Um, well, wild sheep, for the most part, in North America live on public land. For the most part, not in Mexico, not in Texas. To bring them back in Texas, we had to go to private landowners. Texas Parks and Wildlife, uh, an employee of mine who, who I call Mr. Sheep of Texas, a guy named Clay Brewer, mm-hmm. a career uh, biologist with Texas Parks and Wildlife, retired from them, uh, served Wild Sheep Foundation just as, a, as a, our bighorn sheep specialist and desert bighorn sheep specialist for about six years. Just retired April 1st. Hate to see him go. Um, but Clay, uh, just a master negotiator, and Clay saw a different way of doing things. And, and some other great, great Texans, Dr. Red Duke, uh, Texas Bighorn mm-hmm. Society, worked with Texas landowners and said, look, we got a problem. We need to, we need to bring desert bighorn sheep back uh, in Texas. And the only way we're going to do that is cooperation with landowners. Mm-hmm. So, again, Texans being a can-do attitude and pull it up by the bootstraps kind of a, kind of a person's. Um, went to these landowners and used market forces and market incentives to say, look, uh, if you'll allow us, we are going to bring desert bighorn sheep back onto the mountain ranges you own. Uh, If you'll allow us, we want to monitor them. Mm -hmm. And if you allow us, we will monitor them. And when we have X number of a certain class age of rams, we're going to offer a hunting permit to the public, either through a raffle or through a drawing or through a lottery. Um, And for that benefit that you're providing the people of Texas and the heritage of Texas, bringing desert bighorn Mm -hmm. sheep back, we're going to give you a few landowner permits. And you can sell them on the open market to, you know, recoup, if you will, the uh, either the inconvenience or are just allowing us the privilege to have access to your private land. Yeah. So, unbelievable uh, model, very unique in the United States and, and Canada. Not so unique in Mexico, but it, it was uh, it resulted in a fantastic comeback of of nearly two thousand sheep about five thousand or, or five years ago it's amazing amazing and, and i always look uh you know our mutual friend mr chester moore I yeah. mean, he is uh fascinated by these animals and is always trying to provide coverage on them and and ways for people to help support you know that research and stuff and so i always look forward to seeing his uh, articles come out with all the photos and yeah, stuff yeah he he loves he loves wild sheep <coughs> yes he does so um so let's talk a little bit about the the hunting side of sheep in today's world where is that where is that at how accessible is it for people across the united states in general great great question derek and and because uh there's so few uh and because they're so coveted and because of the emphasis that organizations like wild sheep foundation are putting on it mm-hmm. and sheep hunting um, it's a classic case of sl- supply and demand. Uh, there is, quite frankly, way more demand for the wild sheep yeah. resource than there is supply. So what does that do? Well, uh, from a price standpoint, to buy a hunt, they're expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, but then states and provinces can come up with lottery systems that work. And, and they were started 20, 30 years ago with point systems, priority points, bonus points. The challenge is that as the interest in wild sheep hunting increases, as we get more wild sheep hunters, which also makes more wild sheep conservationists, um, those point systems have uh have kind of gone down in effectiveness. So mm-hmm. those of us who didn't didn't get into the game early, likely not going to draw a tag right now. To apply in some of these states, you have less than one percent chance of drawing a sheep tag. Mm-hmm. That's pretty disheartening. So mm-hmm. what do you do about it? Well, look for the states that have random draws. You know. Uh, somebody's going to get lucky. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, you know, do I count on the lotto uh, to be my retirement plan? No, 
But, you know, every once in a while, you know, I support organizations, whether it's Safari Club International, Dallas Safari Club, Wild Sheep, Houston Safari Club, uh, you know, all these, all these great organizations in Texas and, and, and throughout North America. I support them by my sense of gambling, and that's raffle programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are raffles going on for a sheep hunt constantly. Uh, Wild Sheep Foundation has a, a program right now. You join our organization as a member. It's only 45 bucks. Uh, we enter you into a drawing that we're going to give away on June 30th and enter you into an uh, opportunity to win a Northwest Territories doll sheep hunt valued at about twenty-five dollars to $30,000 uh, with your choice of eight outfitters from the Association of Mackenzie Mountain Outfitters. So, you know, there's an opportunity. Forty-five bucks, you're in. Uh, you can also buy chances. Another another four chances up to five at $50, $50 a piece or just extend your membership out. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's those programs. Texas Bighorn Society has uh, opportunities to, to win a raffle hunt for, for a sheep. Um we have something that we started in 2012 and then kicked off at our convention in 2013 in Reno called the Lesson One Club, and, okay. and it's kind of a you know it was it was kind of play on words, but it was you know hey, uh, I don't have one sheep, two sheep, three sheep, four sheep, or twenty sheep. I have less than one. What's up with that? So we created a club for those of us that have less than one sheep. Wild sheep, uh, kind of a cool logo. We, you know, twenty. You know, you join Wild Sheep Foundation. Another twenty-five bucks. You're in the Lesson One Club. We we give you a real cool T-shirt, and we enter you into a drawing. Uh, this 2022, we gave away three doll sheep hunts to members of the Lesson One Club. Uh, for 2023, we're giving away three doll sheep hunts, one desert bighorn sheep hunt. And we're going to kick off something new this year called the Less Than One Club B for veterans. Mm-hmm. So uh, veterans only can be in this drawing. We're going to give away another another doll sheep hunt. So, um, you know, your odds there are a wee bit better than they are in some of these state draws. So, yeah. you know, the status of sheep hunting is 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 a challenge just because there's so few. But there's there's ways you can you know you can you can enjoy it. I was on sheep hunts without a sheep tag but with buddies that had one uh and and quite honestly i've been blessed to take all four north american wild sheep i started late but i got lucky um and you know you can do it too but i've been on more sheep hunts than i've had sheep tags Mm -hmm. just because find some friends that uh, you know get lucky or draw or buy a sheep hunt and you know hey tag along be another set of eyes or or being a pack horse Mm-hmm. That's a that's a that's a good way to to look at it. Starting out, you know, and and doing that. And I know, like um, like back in Oklahoma, you know, our elk population has grown dramatically. You bet. And uh, one of the guys I work with, uh, his buddy got drawn this past year, and and he got to go and help. So basically, they have to stay off the mountain and everything. He, uh, I think, was about three and a half to four and a half miles. <laughs> And finally got the call and say, "Hey, I've got, I was successful," and uh, and he got to go and experience that with them and stuff. And not a lot of people get that opportunity. I mean, no. it's very limited. No. Um, but it's uh, you know that their range has expanded so much. You know, they're they're I think they're able to harvest them on, on private lands now, not just in the Wichita Mountains. Um, but um, it's cool to see that something that is so protected and 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 still in a comeback stage still have a chance to to harvest those and i think that's you know that's the conservation model you know and and hunting is such a big part of that you bet um i know we talked about like africa the other night and just how you you have to provide hunting you know and 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 show some of the good reasons behind that and what that means and stuff and so on on i guess one of the other things I was going to bring up, which I know is a, a a big hot topic, is the the governor's tags, yeah, and stuff. Yeah. But I mean, before we get into that, you know, the best way to do research is you got to raise the money to do it. You bet. So let's jump in that conversation. You, you know, wild sheep conservation is extremely expensive. 
Um, you know, you can hog hunt in, te- in Texas, one of the most expensive hog hunts you can think of. Well, to transplant and transport wild sheep, we're often using helicopters. Mm-hmm. Um, we did in 2014, I had one of my biologists do uh, an analysis of, you know, what does it cost to trap via helicopter a bighorn mm-hmm. sheep, put on a GPS collar, do the veterinary work because we're going to do a nasal swab, a throat swab, blood sample, maybe a fecal sample, maybe a ma- you know maybe a mammogram mm-hmm. or not a mammogram but ultra, ultrasound, ultrasound yeah. uh, on a, on a ewe to see if she's pregnant, um, and then transplant that sheep via helicopter to another location and then release it, forty seven hundred dollars, so forty seven hundred you know nearly five thousand dollars to yeah. move one bighorn sheep Mm -hmm. since the 1940s derek there have been about 2200 translocation actions moving about 24 to 20 uh, 22 to 24 thousand bighorn sheep in north america now you know obviously you know the dollar was worth a little bit more than it is now but you know you, you do that math you see what it costs so Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. That was the whole reason Wild Sheep Foundation was founded. The Foundation for North American Wild Sheep was to raise money Mm -hmm. to drive into the agencies to make wild sheep conservation and repatriation a priority. Mm -hmm. Uh, They just didn't pay their own way. You know yeah. where where elk, deer, mule deer, whitetail did, uh, wild sheep did not. So you know organizations like Wild Sheep Foundation, Texas Bighorn Society, raise the money, drive it into those agencies um, to make wild sheep re- re- you know repatriation a uh, a priority. One of the ways that we do that, and and it's uh it's I used to call the bastardization of the North American wildlife conservation mm-hmm. model, but my good friend Shane Mahoney, I was rowing him down the Yellowstone River, and he and his fabulous voice says, "Gray, I've heard you talk about this bastardization <laughs> of the North American model," and and Mahoney is the authority on the model. Uh, Val Geis conceived of it, if you will. Shane Mahoney is the mouthpiece, and he says, "But Gray, you're wrong." He says, you know, the North American model allows states and provinces and tribes to determine how they fund wildlife conservation. Mm-hmm. He says, in the case of these special permits, governor's tags, conservation tag, conservation permits, whatever you want to call them, that is a way to do that. Uh, we did a study in 2014 and found that about 75% of all wild sheep conservation dollars driven to a state, provincial, or tribal agency came from the sale of an auction tag or a raffle tag from these states. So what are those? Well, you've got a very limited resource. Mm. Um, Montana. We, uh, Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. I live in, in just outside of Bozeman. Uh, Fish, Wildlife, and Parks uh, issues about 100, depending on the year, about 100 to, you know, maybe 125, some years 150 bighorn sheep tags on a lottery basis. Mm -hmm. They take two tags out of that lottery. One goes on auction. One goes on raffle. Raffle for us regular guys and gals. And the auction tag to those that have a little bit deeper pockets. Derek, in 2013, and Wild Sheep Foundation is the the premier and the marquee seller of these conservation permits. In 2013, we sold the Montana Bighorn Sheep Permit, which gives you the opportunity to hunt a bighorn sheep in any legal unit in Montana for $480,000. That's, a, that's an impressive number. $480,000 just for the opportunity to hunt a bighorn sheep. Um, you know, obviously that dollar is, you know, that, that dollar amount is putting you in the front of the line. <laughs> you yeah. know, you're not in a lottery. You just bought the opportunity. Yeah. Um, and thank God there are men and women, uh, you know, throughout, you know, obviously this country, North America, and the world that have the wherewithal to to do that because what they're actually doing you know with their deep pockets you know they're providing 75 percent of the funding to these agencies that same year that we did this study on how much money you know do these tags bring in 
we did an analysis on what the the lottery, the regular uh, uh, tags in in Montana brought in is about one hundred and thirty thousand mm. dollars. You can barely fund a wildlife biologist and put you know him or yeah. her in a truck, uniforms, whatever for one hundred thirty thousand dollars. So, you know all the other tags released into the lottery system brought in one hundred twenty you know one hundred twenty one hundred thirty thousand. One sheep tag brought in four hundred and eighty. So, you know that one animal, and again it shows that adage of if if it you know if it pays it stays. You know one animal out of that allocation, and we only take in in the wild sheep world the harvest on wild sheep out of the adult male population it's only about two to three percent so it's a very small offtake but that one sheep brought in unbelievable amount of money that's crazy and how many states um participate in this in the united states pretty much all the western states so um you know we we uh, we just had our annual convention in reno in january it's called the sheep show we talk about it as sheep week as well uh and just through the sale of these conservation permits we sold about 32 uh we raised just about five million dollars for wild sheep conservation annually the wild sheep foundation which is a, a relatively small organization membership wide we only have about 10,000 members worldwide but we we drive more money on the ground in the mountains than any other organization of our kind yeah. typically six to six and a half million dollars a year by those 10,000 members so you know pretty pretty incredible now obviously those conservation permits are a huge part of that Mm -hmm. so and this year was a record uh we had 11 new permit sales records uh in 2022 one tie um the the wyoming tag wyoming gives five governor tags away and wyoming was one that started this in the early 80s um wyoming gives five tags away very unique yeah utah gives a number of tags nevada gives a number of tags most other states provinces one or two Mm -hmm. montana one to auction one to raffle um the the wyoming tag when it was first sold it was called the governor's you know the governor's permit or governor's tag was selling for you know twenty seven thirty five thousand dollars typically in the fifty to sixty thousand dollar range this year we sold it for three hundred ten thousand dollars you know absolutely amazing now again i mean that's rarefied air you know i'm a regular guy um but you know that amount of money going into the resource makes it a high priority um, and and having that money in these in these agencies allows us to, and was the reason why we're able to increase population yeah. threefold. Well, as somebody that works for one of these agencies full time, you know I uh, appreciate when you know the departments you know receive that funding because you know typically that money is is not there provided by the states sure you know just due to budget budgetary reasons and stuff and and so you rely heavily on donations and uh mutual partnerships with other organizations like the wild sheep foundation and nwtf and mdf and all these other groups and stuff and and to help fund that research and and um and stuff and so that's a really i know it can be a a controversial topic but i think i mean you got to look at the bigger picture and what it's doing overall for the species. You bet. Let me let me tell you a quick story. And there's there's one special place, and and I live there now. Uh, and it, it, the the other special place other than Texas, Montana. Montana has, depending upon the year, three to five units, which are called the unlimited areas. It's the only place in the low, lower forty eight states that you are guaranteed a sheep tag. And so you as a Texas resident can buy a sheep tag in Montana in one of these un- unlimited units. In 2014, so this is, you know, this is the year after we had just sold the Montana tag for $480,000. I was living in Wyoming. I'd moved from Texas to Wyoming, living in Cody, where the headquarters of Wild Sheep Foundation used to be. I moved it to Bozeman, Montana six years ago. Uh, but I was living in Wyoming, and I'm about three and a half hours drive from these unlimited units. I applied for a tag. You're guaranteed 
to get it. Yeah. So you apply for the tag. You hey, I'm going to apply for this tag. Back then it was 750 bucks. I applied for the tag, and in July they go, hey, you were successful in drawing the tag. Well, of course you are. I mean, it's unlimited number of tags. And if you'd like, you got to pay us now 750 bucks, and you've got it. Well, I went, yeah, no, I'm going to go hunt in the unlimited. Um, so in 2014, I bought one of those $750 tags. I got a very good friend of mine, Jack Atchison Jr. This man has sheep blood running through his veins. I mean, he has forgotten more about sheep hunting than I will ever learn in my life. Uh, an employee of mine who used to work for Wyoming Game and Fish, we was kind of our chack, uh, camp jack. We've got grizzly bears up the wazoo in this area. Mm-hmm. And we made a plan. I spent a lot of time in the summer hiking up into these this area in Unit 500 of uh, the Absorca Mountains in, in Montana. I'm a non-resident. You know, I'm a Wyoming guy now. Yeah. But by the grace of God, a lot of luck uh, and a lot of hard work, I took a 13-and-a-half-year-old ram wow. in this unlimited area on a $750 non-resident tag. Mm. And I will <laughs> tell you, Derek, the reason why a regular guy like me could buy that unlimited tag and go hunt bighorn sheep in Montana, and the success rate is 2 to 3%. I yeah. mean, it, it's very, very low. Let's be clear. Um but I was able to do that because some crazy guy from West Virginia in 2013 spent $480,000, and and that money went into wild, you know wild sheep conservation, bighorn sheep conservation in Montana, funded the agency to make the opportunity for me available. So you know, yeah, the conservation tags can be controversial because you know it's a little different than our usual model that mm-hmm. it's equality, you know, from a standpoint yeah. of, of wildlife resource. But my goodness, I'm grateful that there's a crazy guy that gave that money to Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, and I was able to harvest a sheep. Absolutely. So that's really, really cool. Um, Well, I know the last last couple years, you know, we brought it up earlier, we're dealing with the COVID pandemic and all the craziness that's ensued in the world past that. You know, it kind of delayed the sheep show, I think, for a, a year or two years. We we went hybrid on our sheep show. We were able to sneak by in, in 2020. Yeah. Yep. So our show, you know, uh, Dallas had their show in 2020. We had our show right after Dallas Safari Club. Safari Club International followed us. And a bunch of people, I think, got sick in Dallas and got sick at sheep and then got sick at SVI. And we went, what the heck is going on? Yeah. And it was something more than just the typical show show crud so Mm -hmm. we were able to sneak and the whole industry was able to sneak for the most part our big shows Mm -hmm. in 2020 and then yeah we were we were shut down for in person Mm -hmm. uh in 2021 but we looked at it kind of in a different way we you know we were our show is typically in reno uh politically we realized that there was no way in a blue state that we were going to have uh a show an in-person show Mm -hmm. uh texas and our friends in utah uh were feeling a little differently wild sheep foundation pivoted uh about july uh 2020 and we know how to put on an in-person show we don't know how to put on a virtual (laughs) one so my view was you know what uh i've been doing the show business for 20 you know 25 26 years being up you know in charge of it 32 years being a part of it uh, i don't know how to do this virtual thing so we better get some help we better we better pivot now so we did we pivoted early took a lot of flack for it i mean i had buddies of mine going you're bailing off the mountain just because the weather's bad you know we're going to be able to have shows well guess what you know, we were we were we were geared up. We created a you know a virtual expo. Uh, we found a software package out of the Middle East of all places that allowed us to put on a show. Um, we'd been doing online auctions for years. Mm-hmm. I mean, Dallas Safari Club and Wild Sheep Foundation were the the two, and, and, and I know DSC and WSF both in 2012 started doing online auctions, and we were the first big shows to, to do so. Yeah. But we didn't know how to do an expo. Well, we did an expo. We did the online auctions. Derek, we did 83% of our 2020 record net in 2021 as a virtual show yeah it was nuts and 
I mean, everybody struggled with, with making those successful because, I mean, a lot of people, I mean, they had to go that route or just not do it. Yeah. You know. And we didn't have a choice. And, and, and our our idea and our view, we cut our budget in a whole bunch of different places. What we didn't do and we said we were not do was let the wild sheep resource suffer. So where we typically direct six and a half, you know, million dollars into mission programs during that during the pandemic shutdown year, we directed about five point seven, five point eight. What we cut out were more public relation programs and those kind of you know things that we fund um but wild sheep conservation did not take a hit yeah that's uh that's cool but y'all were back um this past yeah we past were year. we were we were all back and we yeah. uh, we loved it i called it herd immunity for our community because <laughs> every single one of us got omnicron or whatever the heck you yeah. call it yeah <laughs> Yeah, so <laughs> but we we soldiered on and again we had it looks like another another record convention for us. We mm-hmm. were like all the organizations, we were down on overall attendance. Um which is interesting. Uh you know, there's pent up demand, but I you know that whole the Omicron scare, you know, we were in Nevada so there was a mass mandate that caused, you know, some angst also. Yeah. Uh, but those that showed up we're spending money, and, mm-hmm. and all the organizations, Safari Club International, Houston Safari Club, Dallas Safari Club, Wild Sheep Foundation, um, we all had exceptional shows. And it, and it just shows the passion that this community has <clears throat> for doing what we do. And mm-hmm. we, were, we were sick and tired of being cooped up. We are going to get out and have fun. Yeah, and I know, so I used to never go to a lot of these trade shows in the, in the industry and now that i'm older and doing like the podcast and my work and charter and all that stuff that i've got going um it's been beneficial for me to go and attend some of these and, and meet people and one of the things you know like we we go to icast every year mm-hmm. over in florida um try to go to nwtf hoping to go to sheep show here in the next couple of years and um you know last year at icast it was a lot smaller than normal because most of the countries, you know, still they couldn't get out. Right. But I'm always trying to find the the silver lining in bad situations. You know, you feel bad for. I mean, the show was, you know, it was in my view, fifty to sixty percent what normally is. Right. But while we're there, you know, we noticed like we got more time one on one to actually carry on meaningful conversations with people throughout the week than normal because normally a lot of these shows you get a few minutes with somebody right you know we can actually get things done work on projects and and whether it's business deals or conservation stuff related you know and i'm sure y'all probably witnessed that as well we you 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 hit the nail on the head we we saw that and in my conversation with our exhibitors that's what they were telling us that you know we we had many exhibitors had their best cheap show and their best of any show Mm-hmm. ever for that exact reason the people you know we were we, we you know we don't have hundreds of thousands of people coming to we don't have tens of thousands of people coming through we have about 11 to 12,000 we're a niche market 11 to 10 you know 12,000 people come to our show this year we were at about 7,500 but the 7,500 that were there mm-hmm. were there to do business and our exhibitors were saying you know we had more quality time um, you know, not to be disparaging, but, you know, we didn't have yeah. the tire kickers. Uh, we didn't have the people coming in with a shopping cart and a garbage bag grabbing our brochures. You know, we yeah. had serious clients that wanted to talk to us, whether it's a fishing trip, a piece of artwork, a hunting trip. You know, uh, they were there. You know, the, the people were there at all of the shows to do business. Uh, some of our bronze sculptors said, you know, we had best show they'd ever had. Yeah. I had a, an outfitter from the Yukon. We were, we were tearing down the show on Sunday. And I was walking over to our store to help box up a bunch of shirts and, you know, yeah. caps and all that kind of stuff. And and an outfitter from uh, the Yukon came up and said, hey, you know, great, great. I, I, I got to tell you. She says, this was nuts. I went, you know, Tina, what, you know, what, what do you think? He goes, great, we, we sold 12 hunts in one hour on Saturday. Wow. She says, we, we couldn't write contracts fast enough. And, and you know, we're not talking $2,500 black bear hunts in Ontario, I mean, these are 10, 15, 20, 35, $45,000 hunts. And 
Um, yeah, you know, you, you're talking about, Derek, the silver lining. I mean, I think the pent-up demand is our community said, you know <laughs> what, we're going to live life. Mm-hmm. And, and if this pandemic uh, didn't teach us anything, it's that, you know, you're guaranteed no tomorrows. Yeah. And, and, you know, some of the restrictions that we were, you know, we were forced to live under or allowed ourselves to live under uh, made us all stand up and take notice that, you know what, we're going to live life. We live in a fabulous country. Uh, you know, we're here in one of the best states in the union, and uh, damn it, <laughs> we're going to get after it. We're going to go hunt, we're going to fish, and, and love every day, I guess. Heck yeah, man. Well, um, that's, it, it's true, you know, and, and, and uh, it was it was good to, to be able to be there in some of these places, and, and this year has been a huge bounce back. I mean, just Great. just the stuff I've seen this year from different things, and, and uh, looking forward to... to getting back to normal yes <laughs> for, well, mostly I, for my kids sake right my daughter started kindergarten the year this all started and she hasn't had a normal year since you know uh. you know and it's, i feel terrible for her because you know kindergarten got cut short right you know last and then the first half of 21 was virtual which was just a mess honestly and uh i feel bad for our educators in this right. country you know right. and i feel really bad for the kids because yeah. they're taking the brunt of this and and um you know it's like those are the ones you know we were talking about brigades last night sure. and 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 you know recruiting kids into the outdoor industry hunting fishing that kind of thing that are going to be the ambassadors and stuff that we're looking for you, you know to help come and lead these these programs and uh, um i hope uh, hopefully we can um, make strides to improve what's what May they have not have been exposed to the last couple of years. Yeah, you know, you know the. So. I think I think we're going to come up with a with a new you know concept called the V word, because none of us want to say virtual anymore. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing normal or anything good about virtual. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it is the V word, and yeah, um, you know, you you look at, you know. We, uh, You'd invite Dr. Dale Rollins here, and you know what a what an incredible man. And 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 Derek, I know you've you know you started a a coastal brigade, and uh, you know Dale's you know program of that that Bob White brigade is just unbelievable. And there's so many good stories out there of of how people in a give back mode of mm-hmm. wanting to share what we love about the outdoors and and create leadership opportunities for for kids or or healing opportunities for you know wounded warriors and and wounded first responders um you know this the altruism of this this community knows no bounds and you know i'm i'm just so grateful for you and and what you've done here so grateful for your leadership with kids and what you're doing of you know introducing kids to you know a coastal environment coastal ecosystems you know fisheries management uh and fisheries conservation um and and to get back to your comment on on you know i'm 60 you're obviously younger than i um one to two years out of my life you know is not good mm-hmm. one to two years out of a four-year-old a six-year-old yeah. a 10-year-old a 14-year-old holy smokes mm-hmm. you know uh, i know when you were a kid and i were a kid you know we thought man the summer is so long hell yeah you know you live in montana <laughs> You know, summer is, well, June is a month of mud. Uh, July, it starts to feel like summer. And by the end of August, we can have snow. So, (laughs) you know, summers ain't long anymore in my life. So I've got about a four-week window. Right, I got about a four-week some trout yeah, fishing. Uh, yeah, four-week window. Where it might be okay. It's not mud or snow. So. Oh man. Well, um, you know, I, we were talking the other night, and, and I want to get this story in, and then we'll kind of wrap things up. But you're you're. Um, I wanted you to tell a little bit about your your introduction into hunting and kind of how that that happened for you yeah earlier in your career because you were kind of a a late onset absolute absolute onset hunter um i you know i grew up in california uh my folks split up when i was five years old um both remarried and i'm i'm blessed i have two sets of parents so i'm not gonna i'm not gonna go pound you know down the woe is me path but i was i was raised uh for you know five of my 
10 years until my mom remarried uh, by a single mom. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, uh, Derek, had gone to, she worked at a bank making minimum wage uh, to keep us going. And she had gone to a, a bank picnic up at this park called Foothills, uh, Foothills uh, Park. And there was a lake up there, and she saw some kids fishing. And she said, huh, you know, um, I, I think my, you know, my son and my daughter would probably benefit from that. So she brought us over to what was then called Gemco. I don't even know if they're around. She bought us a little spinning outfit, which was the exact kit that she had seen some kids using. And we started fishing. Um, and that kind of started something with me. And, and I read everything I possibly could about fishing. Uh, I started fly fishing when I was nine. Um, I, you know, I am mowing lawns, washing cars, digging ditches, doing all the things that kids do to raise money. And where did my money go? Well, it went into fishing gear and sports of field, outdoor life, and field stream magazines. I don't know if it was that, Derek. I don't know if it was just this innate thing with me, but um, I had this interest in hunting and maybe it was just reading about you know these hunting stories in those magazines i had this interest in hunting but i didn't have anyone to take me hunting yeah i didn't have an uncle didn't have a father didn't have a mother didn't have a you know a a, you know grandmother that were interested in hunting none of my family hunted i started climbing i got big into mountaineering still do some ice climbing now um it got me up in the mountains and i thought well i can fish in the mountains but i'm you know i'm walking through this beautiful country and going man i want to hunt so I graduated college in 1983. I was working for Xerox Corporation, and a Xerox customer of mine at American National Bank in Bakersfield, California, somehow dropped a word about hunting or shooting or something. Now, when I was 18, I was able to buy my first rifle, you know, so I bought a Marlin 336T3030, and I yep. loved it. Couldn't <laughs> afford to shoot the damn thing, but I loved it. You know, and at 21, I think I bought my first, you know, handgun, a, a Mark Mark uh, One Ruger, um, <laughs> 22. You know, and at least I could shoot that. You know, you could you, back then you could buy thousand rounds of CCI 22 for 10 bucks. You yeah. Know? You know, now now you have to mortgage your house. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I you know I, I met this guy, and I and it was a lunch that changed my life, and I invited Daryl Amble, who later became my hunting mentor. And I said, Daryl, uh, may I take you to lunch? And so we went to Red Robin and had a burger. And again, it was the burger and fries that changed my life. And I said, would you teach me to hunt? Mm-hmm. And he became my mentor. And so I'm in my early, mid-20s. Um, and Daryl took me under his wing as my mentor. He, mm-hmm. he taught me how to reload. He you know, taught me you know, shooting. But more than anything else, Derek, he taught me to do the right thing and to be an ethical hunter um he and i became hunter safety instructors uh we then you know shared our passion and shared that knowledge with you know with with hundreds of kids uh we later formed an organization called valley coalition for constitutional rights that was fighting for firearms rights for californians now that's a novelty yeah um and and that you know that process i had i'd left xerox went to work for a company called burroughs which became unisys was kind of hating life selling computers just wasn't my thing and i made the jump i made the jump into the nonprofit world and went to work for safari club international so you know what what what's the moral of that story well i didn't come from a hunting family somehow it was innate in me i don't know there was a love of outdoors absolutely there was but maybe it was just you know, vicariously living through stories in, in, in three classic magazines. Uh, but it was through a mentor that took me under his wing, taught me the right way. And, you know, we started hunting, you know, we started hunting California ground squirrels with contender 223, you know, hand rifles, if you will, handguns. Um, we then went, you know, with 30-30 barrel on our contender. We hunted black-tailed deer, never got them. Got one, and then I went with Daryl and a good buddy, banking buddy of his, to Wyoming in 1986 and shot a pronghorn antelope. Um, and again, it's all with that mentor. And, and here I look, you know, 32 years later professionally, 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I got into this industry in 1990. I mean, it's it's absolutely changed my life. I've hunted Africa, I've hunted Asia, or, or hunted or been in mid Asia. I haven't hunted Asia, but hunted Europe. Um, you know, hunted in the South Pacific, hunted Mexico. I've been absolutely blessed, and it all goes back to a burger and fries with Daryl Amble in Bakersfield, California. Something in it, yeah, crazy. Hey, you know what we're having for lunch today? Hamburgers. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Gray, I uh, this has been. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, I've been looking forward to this interview for quite a while, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, for you and your wife to fly down here and be a part of this event. And um, I would like for you just to kind of let everybody know um, where to go, follow Wild Sheep Foundation, and um, you know, um, and uh, hopefully jump on board. And I know you're going to have a bunch of new members from right here. Well, it's, so. you know, it's it, it's funny thing about wild sheep. You know, even if you don't hunt them get involved in it and you know there is a chance and yes you join wild sheep foundation it's only 45 bucks you get a great magazine called wild sheep uh for that 45 dollars we're going to enter you into a drawing for a northwest territories doll sheep hunt uh you can go to wildsheepfoundation.org uh, and find all about us uh you know follow us on uh, on instagram follow us on uh, social media uh, i'm here too to learn because three years ago we started talking about doing our own wild sheep foundation podcast mm-hmm. uh we were kind of stupid to not do it during the pandemic that would have been a great way to uh the, to you know to pass through it but um we'll be launching our own podcast so derek i'm learning a lot from you awesome uh and a lot from uh the other great podcasters that you have here at uh, is this your second second this is annual? the second annual second annual and, podcast uh, summit what a fabulous idea fabulous leadership from your standpoint but yeah join the wild sheep foundation um you know check out um on our website you can look for our local chapters and affiliate if you're in texas i encourage you to join the texas bighorn society uh, they've got what they call their annual roundup in June. It's going to be up in Grapevine, and I'm coming back down from Montana to see my good friends here in Texas. All right. Well, maybe we can sneak a fishing trip in there while y'all are down here. So. Well, you know what? And, Derek, we're going to get you to the sheep show, and uh, I know you can sell a bunch of charters at our show because, uh, you know, those boys and girls love to uh, love to chase redfish yeah. and trout and uh, sheep's head well i would love to donate one if that will help as well i think we i think we just uh (laughs) i think we just made that happen thank you sir yeah absolutely so well i think this is a good uh, time to wrap this up and uh we uh we got lunch to get and then i think we're gonna have a little fishing tournament after lunch so uh i'm gonna finally pick up that fly rod for this thing so thanks greg hey appreciate it Derek. appreciate you buddy thanks thank you Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery. Waypoint TV. Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.